Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. Thanks for being here with me today. Later on in the show, we're going to meet Donna Morrissey, author of six national best-selling novels. She has received awards in Canada, the U.S., and England. Her fiction has been translated into several different languages. Born and raised in Newfoundland, she now lives in Halifax, amongst my people. Today, we talk about her new memoir, Pluck, a memoir of Newfoundland childhood and the raucous, terrible, amazing journey to becoming a novelist. First, though, Rick Emmett is in three Canadian halls and two walks of fame. After 12 platinum LPs in his years as one-third of the rock band Triumph, he went on to produce 20 indie projects from rock and blues to jazz, folk, and classical. Now, you might be used to hearing him like this. a snippet of Hold On by Triumph, a top 40 song written by Rick Emmett from their Just A Game album. These days, Rick is trying something new. He's reinventing himself as a poet. It's a world of spin doctors, handlers, media consultants, publicists, managers of managers of managers. The tail wags the dog and has been doing it for so long now, there really isn't any dog to speak of anymore. Everything that goes public is geared towards life support for the tail. That was Rick doing a reading of Tail Wags the Dog from Reinvention, his new book of poetry available now wherever fine books are sold. It's a project that followed on the heels of his retiring from touring and the life of a college educator in early 2019. In the book, he makes sense of a life that always went in a lot of different directions all at once. Here's Rick Emmett via Zoom from his home in Ontario. Congratulations on uh, reinvention. Thank you. Uh, you know, I, congratulations might be a bit premature. Let's see how it plays out over the next bit. But uh, well, yeah, I, I mean, certainly I, I, I think I deserve congratulations for getting it finished and getting it out. Like, See, this is what I always say. So I start usually start my interviews with a congratulations of some sort for exactly that reason. You got it finished. You got it out. It's in the world now. That deserves a congratulations. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, it's not like I don't have enough of a work ethic to uh, start something and finish it. I've made a lot of albums in my life and, and um, you know, concert tours and, you know, um, this one though required a different kind of a courage and and um yeah i'm i'm still a little trepidatious about that you know i'm not sure that that uh uh you know i as i've had to say in some other interviews you know i really do feel like a real neophyte like a real rookie and mm -hmm. you know i've dipped my big toe into something that i'm realizing is like the pacific ocean you know right. there's there's so much to learn i was doing an interview with somebody the other day I'm a very lovely lady and she says to me are you familiar with Lorna Crozier and I go Lorna Crozier no I'm afraid I don't know she goes yeah. oh okay well you know she's won uh governor general's award and she's won this and she's won that and I think poet laureate and blah, blah, blah. I'm going oh no yeah yeah this okay. is a new world for and, you <laughs> yeah and you know I order Lorna Crozier's books I start to read them and I go oh god she's 
amazing. She's wonderful. She's, you know, so what was I thinking? Well, <laughs> you did, you ever fe did you ever feel that way, though, uh, when you first started putting out records or when you first put your first band together? Any was that is this a familiar feeling from other aspects of your life? Uh, yeah, here's the difference. When I did those things, I was young and cocky and full of myself. And now I'm 68 years old and I look at myself and go, you know, uh, uh, I, I think life has kind of uh, taught me more about humility than youth ever did, you know. Um, and uh, that, that's that's a bit of a cliche in any case, you know, that uh, uh youth is wasted on the young because you know we we didn't have any any frame of reference for the things that we were doing so um yeah i i i think that uh you know uh when i got to have things happen like hear my songs on the record for the uh, sorry yeah hear my songs on record for the first time hear records on the radio for the first right. time you know uh get to play a, like a place like you know Maple Leaf Gardens for the first time or the uh, Joe Louis Arena in Detroit or, you know, like uh, the first time I played an outdoor show where there were, you know, 50,000 people, you know, uh, those kinds of things when they happen, you go, okay, there was no way to prepare for this. Uh, and obviously the scale of this is, is humbling, you know, um, and I, and I have a lot to learn, but the very fact that you get those, um, experiences you're 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 moving into a kind of a, a an elite you're you're climbing up the mountain mm -hmm. side you know you're, you're getting towards a, a very elite kind of air and and um so that I, I know a little bit about that um so i know that i'm way down on the <laughs> it's a new mountain and i <laughs> Far, far below the tree line. You're listening to my interview with Rick Emmett, author of the book of poetry, Reinvention, available now wherever fine books are sold. Yeah. The book is about reinvention. It's interesting, having followed your career for many years, uh, how many times you have reinvented yourself uh, from uh, walking away from big arena rock tours to making these, I think, very eclectic and interesting and always different solo projects so i guess it makes perfect sense that this book of poetry would be all about reinvention but it's interesting to me that it's coming out now during the pandemic at a time when everyone is talking about a pivot in their lives the pandemic has made a lot of us think about our careers our lives our working situations whatever it might be much differently people are thinking about reinvention was that is this a pandemic book did it come out of was it born out of that, or is it is it something that has just always been on your mind? Uh, a little bit of both. Uh, you, you know, um, there's definitely. Um, I mean, there's a poem at the beginning of the book that that talks about. It's kind of functioning as a preface about how different people in my life would always say. Well, I mean, I had high school teachers that said, "Oh, you should be a writer." Uh, you know, I don't know about this music thing and rock star <laughs> stuff. You know, like really you should be a writer you have a gift and, and you should you should pursue it and then even later on in life you know my son at one time at the dinner table was sitting when you go geez dad you should write a book you want to talk about politics and you want to talk about um you, you know all the things you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table you, you want to talk about them so you should you should write about that you know um 
And so that was always something that was there, like, you know, the burr under the saddle kind of thing. Um, but I always had enough going on in my life that, you know, um, I mean, I taught for years at Humber College and, and I found it extremely fulfilling. It's also, I only ever taught uh, part-time and partial load sort of, I never was a full-time professor, but it was enough that, you know, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays of my week, I had plenty to keep me busy and then would be flying on planes to gigs, marking and grading, you know, while I was on the plane. So I always had enough to sort of occupy me. Um, but then finally along came COVID and, and uh, it was like, well, this might be a good time to sort of uh, see if, if I can. You know. And I gathered a few things from the past, not much, but a little bit. And, and uh, that got me sort of rewriting and starting. And, and then, um, yeah, I, I, I had a, a cousin and, and, a, and a writer, uh, my cousin Nancy Wood, uh, who's out on the west coast of this Canada, and a friend who's a writer in England, uh, Jane Christmas. And I sent them stuff, and they were like beta readers for me. Right. But it, that was a very positive experience that they sort of said, no, you know what, this deserves uh, to for the public to see it and for, you know, for you to go ahead, you know, have, have the guts to put this out, you know, shop it and see what happens. So uh, I did. So it def it definitely did come from COVID, Richard, but, um, you know, it was something, it was, a, it was, it's more, uh, I want to go back to something you said before. It's more than a bucket listy kind of thing. And I'd like to think I do more than dabble, you know, that when I go into jazz or when I go into folk or that, that, um, in truth, those are things that are probably more uh, a part of who I actually am than being a rock star in spandex pants. And, and you know, when when that happens to you in life, you're kind of getting pushed into this thing where uh, it's bigger than you are, and it's it's taking over who you are. And now that's how people perceive you, and that's what they think you are. Uh, and I never really. I never really was that. Not that I wasn't completely willing to to you know put on the spandex pants and jump around and go. That's right, you know, I, I'm a rock star. But in a, in a way, it's also like being um, an actor, where someone says, "Here's a mask. Here's a role. You know, right. do this." And then it, it just it becomes so successful that oh my god, you're in this sitcom that's running for nine seasons. 10 seasons and now you can't walk down the street without people going hey it's the guy from big bang theory you know like you go yeah okay yeah i am that guy you know uh so it's very similar to that that you know um when i when i went back to things like blues and 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 you know jazzy blues uh folk stuff i'm going back to the guy that i was when i you know played guitar at the west end ymca you know when i was 16 and 17 years old and that could have been my path in life it just happened that life you know decided it went nope here's what's going to happen to you uh you go oh okay well i'm, I'm not going to say no to going along on this roller coaster ride it's yeah it's too much fun to say no to. we'll talk about the book in a second but we're sort of getting there but there was a point at which uh with all the success that the band had had that you walked away that you said, you know what? I feel like I've done what I can do here. This is my take on it. Anyway, you said, I think I've done what I can do here. And you reinvented yourself. And, and that, now is that, 
the product of a restless creative spirit because I, I I get what you're saying you know about being typecast is one thing when you feel like something else but all the way along you must have had these restless urges to do something else yes and and, and I don't think they'll ever go away and I don't think artists uh, who are you know worth their salt should uh, should deny that you know you you, you can't you, you, you can't um, you can't escape it. It's it's always going to be there, and you, you have to address it. Uh, and one of the things about being in Triumph was <clears throat> that they did give me opportunities to sort of push at the envelope. I, you know, I got to put classical guitar pieces on records, and you know, I would write songs that would have different uh, evolutionary kinds of sections to them. So that I would be able to get my yayas out in a lot of ways, um, and I, you know, I'm grateful to uh, Mike and Gill that they did give me that those opportunities to do that within that framework. Mm -hmm. But uh, it did get to a point where the framework was just, you know, it was just too much. That the 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 masquerade of it all, the 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 house of cards nature of commercial rock and roll music by 1988. It, it, it just, it did not seem viable to me. And, you know, I think over time, I, I, that sort of played out, you know, um, the, the, the arena rock bands that had existed that were sort of the second generation out of the classic rock bands of the 60s and in the early 70s, you know, Triumph started mid-70, 75. And, and, and um, by, by 1985 or 86, I was really feeling like, I'm not sure this roller coaster ride is is not coming to an end. It really feels like it's over for me. By '88, I was sure that there was no other option. I had to get out. I had to reinvent, or my life was just going to sort of be, um, you know, end up being. I'm going to be chasing something that no longer has a validity or a currency or a vitality. All those kinds of things that I think art requires, you know. Which is not to say commerce, because you can beat you know a, a horse to death, um, and some people will do that. You know, I just I, I wasn't wired that way. So, um, and I mean, you know, there's other things to play into this too. I'm sorry to have big long answers to questions, but um, you know, uh, Tiff is having a, a, a Triumph documentary, and. Uh, if you survive long enough, sort of, you know, things come back around. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you go, oh, geez, you know, you know, a whole new generation is discovering the rock and roll machine. You know, go, okay, well, that's great, but you know, I didn't ever necessarily want to play the nostalgia game. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you start writing poetry, you realize, well, no, nostalgia certainly plays into human emotion in, in huge ways, you know. And now here I am writing poems about my mom and my dad and my brother and people that have died. And you go, okay, well, you know, I, I guess nostalgia is maybe I should have given it a little more credit than I did. Well, you know? uh, you're listening to my interview with Rick Emmett, author of Reinvention, available wherever you buy fine books. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I, I read one interview with you where you say, uh, I don't like to waste my energy looking back. And then since that interview, because I think that interview was from a year or two ago, 
the documentary has happened. You've written a book of poetry that you talk about looking back. Have you reassessed that a little bit? Because the documentary must be like for a lot of people, I suppose, looking through a, a photo album or something like that for most of us, but you're there on the big screen and it has to bring up memories or uh, uh, emotions that maybe you didn't expect. Yeah, but and I think, you know, the short answer to your question about reassessment is yes, absolutely, I did. And, and uh, I reassessed my take on it because I mean, I got to a point where I was I was seeing a, a therapist and, you know, going back and examining your past and looking at like you can't figure out who you are uh, unless you figure out what shaped you, you mm -hmm. know, and what made you. So and reinvention is really uh, there's a very strong therapeutic thing that's going on in that, you know, there's a poem in there that I literally wrote it to my psychotherapist at one point, you know, said, hey, yeah, I'll have a look at this and tell me if you think I'm on the right track. You know, and she said, I think this is great. I think this is healthy. I think this is really good. So uh, I, I do think that that's, you know, I never really, I was always restless, partly because I was, you know, trying to move on and there was a denial thing about it. And then th that's not healthy. There has to be an acceptance uh, of the mistakes you've made and the, the things that you know, uh, you know, destroyed you and and broke your heart, and you you have to come to terms with all of that stuff. That's what living is, you know. Well, I was a little reticent to bring up triumph at all because of that. I don't like to look back. Uh, thought, but yeah, it's part of the it's part of the puzzle. It, it fits in. You have to talk about it to put everything else that came afterwards in some kind of context. And absolutely. You don't want to spend 30 years talking about a band that that uh, broke up many years before. But in some part, it's such a, a, a big part of what came afterwards that it's it, it, you have to, I think. Yeah. And, and you know, um, there's always I, I've been working on a new poem. And I had this idea and I you know, sketched it at the top of the pages. Like, uh, there's a herd of elephants in the room. Uh, there's never just one. Right. You know. There's a herd of them, you know, and my triumph stuff, it's one of my elephants, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's in my room and there's no point denying that it's there. Uh, you know, I, you got to learn to love that elephant, you know, like, am I going to feed it to the exclusion of all of the other young animals that are growing up in my menagerie? No, I don't intend to do that, but it's, you know, yeah. Now, tell me a little bit about uh, writing uh, poetry as opposed to writing song lyrics. Is there a different uh, approach that you take? It, does it feel different to you? Uh, what's your method? Uh, my method of writing hasn't changed. Uh, I am old school and I have, you know, pen and a spiral notebook. And I just uh, forage for ideas like a minor bird stealing <laughs> shiny things from you know wherever they can find them yep. uh, and then uh as i used to tell my songwriting students sometimes you get something and it's an acorn and you know that's an oak tree you just know it you can feel it you get a sense of it so that's that's when it's easy that there, there's an inspiration thing there that's going to make the 99 percent perspiration easy uh there's other things that require a lot more uh, time and diligence and, and um, when I write poetry, 
I uh, love the fact that there's a bit more freedom to it. Songwriting is very much about uh, you're, you're writing into a point where form is now imposing itself and saying, okay, this is how the, uh, you know, the, the phrasing is going to go. This is how your rhyme scheme is going to drop. You know, this is how this is going to work. And then, of course, songwriting is very much once you've created one chunk, well, then, you know, the next verse chunk has got to, it's got to mirror it. It's got to be the same. So there's a real discipline to that. Whereas poetry, and especially a type of poetry called ultra talk, which I discovered through a couple of uh, textbooky kind of books about stuff, um, about poetry writing. Um, and uh, ultra talk really spoke to me. It was like, oh, this is, this is kind of like you're just having a conversation with Richard Krauss. And you just write it down on the page. By God, this is fantastic, you know. So that really was like a license to kind of, you know, uh, get me going. And then it kind of got easy. Um, and I don't mean easy like easy on my heart. It wasn't easy, you know. Emotionally, writing is a, a, sometimes a tough and a lonely kind of uh, avocation, but it is that. It, it, it is a calling and. You have to answer the calling. And so the that's the work part. And I I've always loved process. I've always been a, you know, a very um I have a strong work ethic, you know, uh and, and I don't deny it. Uh I I enjoy it. Uh so the writing of poetry became part of this, uh, especially during COVID, this really lovely thing that I could do on my own where I was feeling productive and I was feeling useful and I was feeling fulfilled, you know, uh, creatively. Uh, although, you know, having said all that, my, there's my guitar just over here. There's my guitar. Let me just show you. I see there's these guitars. Oh, there yeah. Yeah, and they, they call to me, you know, and they say, why are you ignoring me? You know, uh, because I had a lifelong sort of addiction to that. Um, so, uh, of course, having said all this reinvention, the, the audiobook has two songs because two of the poems, they weren't poems. They were going to be song lyrics. They were already telling me that. So I went, okay, I'll see it all the way through. I'll just record voice and guitar and have a couple of tunes in here to add to the audiobook. And then my guitars were going, well, what if you, what if you just had like a little jazzy guitar thing that kind of was like behind the intros to the different sections of the book and I went Ooh, yeah that'd be, you know so you know that my old past kind of became part of my new yeah. present and, all your yeah. worlds collide yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah well I love what you're saying about writing and and even though it's solitary when once you've written something and you feel that sense of accomplishment I uh, have written a bunch of books and and whenever I start with something I always obviously start with the blank page and I used to be kind of stymied by that first blank page the very first day of writing on a book project because you look at it and it seems so yeah, yeah I gotta do 500 of these I gotta fill 500 of these with words and they have to be in the right order and then um, I started thinking of every page as potential every page can be whatever I want it to be and all of a sudden it 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 didn't get easier, but it got less daunting. The idea of yeah. doing it, and that, and yeah. when I fill up a page, I still feel that kind of feeling of of accomplishment. That you know, this has been a good day. There's a full page in front of me. Now. Absolutely, and even sometimes, if you just get a, a 
I can't remember who it was, but it was like, you know, he spent a day or something. And he goes, well, I, I got a comma in there. So, oh, it's it was, James Joyce. So James Joyce writes day. all day. A friend of his yeah. comes by and says, James, how'd the writing go today? And he says, it was a pretty good day. I got uh, seven words. And he goes, well, James, that's pretty good for you. He goes, well, now I'm trying to get them in the right order. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like uh, the application and dedication uh, process is, is uh, it's a crucial one. And, and it's a spiritual kind of a thing in the sense that it, it is a leap of faith. The, the blank page and, the, and, and just putting a comma there, you know, putting yep. a few words there. Like that is a, a kind of an act of faith that you're keeping with yourself. You're listening to my interview with Rick Emmett, author of Reinvention, a new book of poetry available now wherever fine books are sold. And, and I think it's a good one. It's a therapeutic one. Uh, and uh, and it, it's, it's, been, it's been nice to me. I can't complain. My, yeah. you know, my creative life has uh, brought me many, many things. And, you know, not necessarily just the things that, that pay off monetarily, but, you know, friendships and, and associations with creative people and opportunities to do things. Like, I look back on my music career and some of the best things, I, was, I wasn't making any money, you know, like to, to get to, to, to sit in a session with Ed Bickert, the jazz guitar mm -hmm. player, and, and, you know, like, there was no money to be doing yeah. that project, but my god it was you know like this is what i wanted my life to be like you know these were the things i wanted to have happen and somehow i think you know at the tender age of 68 i kind of feel like no i've taken a step in a good direction here this is you know it, you know writing poetry as i wrote on the back of my book like like playing jazz guitar it's it's not about the money like, no, no you're not getting rich doing this yeah no no but um it's it, it i'm sort of old enough now that i'm past that in any case you know i, I don't need to be concerned about that I'm, I'm much more concerned about uh having this uh enrichment of of the last chapter of my life if you have if you have uh, something that you'd feel comfortable reading i would love that thank you i had said in a lecture once hey you know let's let's uh, let's try to keep politics out of this because it was getting a little heated right. and, and a woman turned to me and she goes politics and everything you can't keep politics out of the stuff politics is in everything i went she's right you yeah. know so anyhow so uh this is uh gonna be my poem about um about politics and it's called tail wags the dog okay <clears throat> it's a world of spin doctors handlers media consultants publicists managers of managers of managers the tail wags the dog and has been doing it for so long now, there really isn't any dog to speak of anymore. Everything that goes public is geared towards life support for the tail. There used to be a political system and the media covered it. Now politics is a snake pit of dysfunction and the media systematically gets in our face. McLuhan was an oracle. The medium is the message. The media covers the media and analyzes their own coverage. And who owns the media? Telecoms, the multinational conglomerates, the four horsemen of technology and their corporate minions. It's a miracle if anything approaching reality, anything approaching real work or real solid social contract activity actually gets accomplished. 
or even exposed once the digital universe has assimilated the information. Public service has been polluted by public relations. Journalism struggles and increasingly fails against the prevailing global social conditions dictated by technology, return a profit to the shareholders of a very small division of your media conglomerate corporation's bottom line. The bottom line is all tale. That was Rick Emmett. Find his book, Reinvention, his new book of poetry, wherever fine books are sold. My guest in this segment is Donna Morrissey. She is the author of six national bestsellers. Her latest book is called Pluck, a memoir of a Newfoundland childhood and the raucous, terrible, amazing journey to becoming a novelist. It's a fascinating story. Didn't write a word until she was 40 years old, didn't even know she wanted to be a writer, and now she tops the bestseller charts. Pluck is a deeply personal account of love's restorative ability as it leads the novelist, Donna Morrissey, through mental illness, family death, and despair to becoming a writer. It's told with a lot of charm and a lot of humor. Here's Donna Morrissey, who joined me via Zoom from her home in Halifax. You've won the Thomas Riddall Award uh, a couple of times uh, for your writing. And because I'm from Liverpool, Nova Scotia, uh, he was the only person that I had any experience with who was a writer and I wanted to write. And uh, so I, I did not, I, I cannot confess to knowing him well, but certainly I met him a number of times and, and he was very inspirational to me because he was someone who I knew who was from the same small town that I was or living in the same small town that I was and actually doing it, doing it for a living. I found that very inspirational. Did you have any early inspirations uh, uh, that would have been similar or things that you aspired to in that way? No, no, I, I didn't. I didn't have any of that at all. I, writing was something that I fell into when I was in my early 40s. I was kind of a late bloomer and everything. So growing up in isolated outport like I was, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of um, connections or mentors to be had. And I never thought of writing. It was just something that uh, happened to me in my early 40s. I graduated university in my late 30s, met somebody who, you know, kind of heard something in my voice and encouraged me to write. So I just I just wrote kind of in a vacuum. And uh, the first thing I ever wrote was a little short story and then my first novel. And so I didn't meet anyone until I had the product in my hands. So. Do you think that even though you had no intention of becoming a writer, just that idea that you lived and you'd had to create your own world in your head prepared you in some way for what would eventually become your career? You know, um, that's one of the things that we tracked in the memoir is where where does it start, mm -hmm. that seed for creativity and imagination? And uh, there's no doubt that I can look back and see those things that inspired me, that caught my imagination and changed my world, you know, bit by bit by bit. But it's not something that you're that I was conscious of. I never ever thought, oh, I want to do this. Oh, oh, I got to, you know, as far as I was concerned, books came out of machinery, you know, and just, <laughs> I, I had no consciousness around that. Yeah. Well, Pluck is a, is a memoir. 
But I'm, I'm curious about uh, when you're writing about yourself, do you do any research or is it all just from memory? There would probably be a few times when I would check with my sisters right. to get uh, certain times right. And sometimes, you know, you look back on a situation and you wonder, Jesus, was it really like that? <laughs> you know, or is it morphed into that in my mind? And I remember calling up my uh, second cousin, Ruby Osmond, you know, from Lower Beaches and saying, Ruby, <laughs> these guys ever throw rocks at you every time you... She said, oh, Donna, they threw rocks at everybody. And, and <laughs> some things you had to check out. You know? You're listening to my interview with Donna Morrissey. Find her book, Pluck, wherever fine books are sold. Well, you talk about, you, you mentioned your sisters in that answer. Uh, it, this is partially their story as well. Do you ask uh, permission before well, embarking on a project like this? No, you don't ask. The rule is you write as if everyone's dead, and uh, <laughs> and, then, and then you start making the you know the little tweaks later to soften it or change it or fix it. Right. I, I, in my family, there was we had so much tragedy, and uh, so it really brought, brought us together. You know, we kind of grew inwardly into each other, and so I had their blessings to write this story, most especially the part concerning our mother. Because the thing about writing memoir is that when you remember an incident and you write about it, you're kind of taking ownership of it because it's seeing how you see it through your eyes and your interpretation, and theirs might be totally different. I'm arguing with my daughter right now about some little thing that she read in a book. You know, she goes, "Mom, that's not you know." So. You know, you you have to know that you have to know that memory is not perfect, and everybody remembers things differently. When you are writing a memoir, you are creating a character to a to a certain extent. Is it a different process than creating a character for a novel? Yeah, you're very aware, and uh, that you're writing about yourself as a character. And the very first draft I sent. You know, you become so self-conscious because I'm uh, I don't think of myself as a self-indulgent person. And uh, so when I sent it away, I had written about myself as a character, you know, like diffused through the eyes of an adult looking back. And the first thing, you know, Penguin said when they read the first draft was, Donna, where, where's where are you? You you wrote it. Um, you're not giving us enough of who you are. And so because I wrote it through the dramatic first person perspective through the eyes of the character as opposed from the internal me. And so I had to go back and put myself in that character and bring it, bring myself to the page. And yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit tricky to do, you know, you want to make yourself look good. And, uh, but at the same time, you want to be true to what the, what, who you were back then. There is a lot of tragedy in this story, but the book, while there are tragic moments, there is darkness, but it always seems to be balanced by some kind of light. I do think that there's kind of an East Coast survival tactic in the face of tragedy, where we kind of look at the lighter side sometimes if we can, or we, we, we I think, just have a different outlook if you grow up by the sea. Do you feel that? Most definitely. And when you grow up in these situations, there's so many people, you know, you would think that you grew up in isolation. There's so few, but really whoever is there is in your face, is yeah. in your house and in your life and in your psyche. And there's so many characters, you know, the goofballs, the somber ones, the, 
you know, so everybody is sharing in it with you. And so the, the camaraderie, the humor, it just flows out of that because not everybody is going to be somber. There's always going to be some arsehole cracking a joke at how you look. You know, it's always going to be, you know, it's just built in. It's yep. built into the Newfoundland um, persona, you know, this, this sense of humor. God, our family is filled with it. What do you hope people take away from Pluck? One of my big concerns when I was writing it was the, of course, the breakdown, uh, because that was such a bizarre th um, thing. And uh, I, if, my, if anybody were to take anything away, it would be how to reach out and survive uh, mental illness because it's an illness like any other and there's hope. I would, I would, it would just, to know that this could reach somebody who was suffering alone as I did, you know, I would just hope that that would happen. There are things like that that are so personal and so heart driven that, yeah, you're, you're making yourself vulnerable, but you know what? Just, it's, it's all, it's an open book. Donna, thank you. What a pleasure to speak. You're great. I love your questions and I love your charm. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much. That was Donna Morrissey. Find her memoir, Pluck, wherever fine books are sold. A big thanks to Donna for joining me all the way from Halifax. Also, a big thanks to Rick Emmett. His new book of poetry is in stores right now. It's called Reinvention. It's interesting stuff from an interesting guy. Of course, my biggest thanks, as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon. <laughs>